All right, I invite you to take out your Bibles and you can turn to John chapter 11. John 11, starting in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. A sense of reading of God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. Continue working our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, we left off in the middle of a beautiful and mind-blowing true story about love, death, and glory. Lazarus, a dearly beloved friend of Jesus, had fallen ill. And when the messengers brought word to Jesus, John says, Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, so when he heard this news, he stayed where he was for two more days. As we saw last week, this was loving on the part of Christ because he had a greater purpose in mind, one that would display his glory and strengthen the faith of many. It was loving, as we saw, because it was serving their ultimate good, to show them the glory of God and to bring them a fuller apprehension of the glory of God in Christ than what they had previously experienced. And truly, this is love and this is the purpose of all our preaching. So let us pray that God would bless the preaching of his word unto these ends. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for revealing your will to us that we may know how to live a life that pleases you. And for us, your people, this is our deep desire. We thank you for showing us that there is no way we can earn a right standing before you through our works, but that Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you that we may truly encounter you through your word. As your word is now opened and proclaimed, we ask that you would give us the eyes to see your glory that is truly here. As we continue through this narrative, may it have its intended effect and strengthen our faith. May all who hear see your glory through the proclamation of your word. May we encounter you here. And Lord, through that seeing, may we be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Show us your glory, Lord, and may it inflame the affections of your people. And may all who hear leave today thinking, what a magnificent Savior. Lord, we ask, please bless the preaching of your word unto these ends. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So after delaying, after staying another two days where he was, Jesus then began to make his way back to the region of Judea to go and to raise Lazarus. And this is where we pick up our story this morning. So if you have your Bibles open, 
You can read with me from John 11, starting in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, as we mentioned last week, it may have been part of the reason Jesus waited as long as he did. Uh, It may have been the Jewish belief that a person's soul lingered around their body for the first three days after their death. Again, not saying that was a biblical view, but that there's some evidence that that may have been the view at the time of Jesus. Now, if such a belief had been present already, that could help explain uh, the significance of this detail, right? That Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, right? Everybody would now believe Lazarus was fully dead, right? Not just mostly dead, but all dead, right? The kind of dead where normally there's nothing you can do but rifle through their pockets for change, for catch my reference, Um, And so by waiting this long, the miracle Jesus is about to perform would be received as a greater miracle than if Jesus had raised him sooner. And whether or not this was already a belief at the time of Christ, in the all-wise providence of God, he saw fit to include this detail into John's account, uh, perhaps so that when this belief did emerge, skeptics would not be able to downplay this miracle. And we actually see people doing the same kind of thing, even with the resurrection of Christ, right? I don't know if you've heard of the swoon theory that Jesus did not actually die, but merely fainted and then managed to somehow work his way out of the tomb, Um, right? So having been dead for four days and sealed in this tomb kind of gives skeptics a tough time, a tough go to try to deny what happened here. Uh, So anyway, we continue in verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So here we're reminded, Bethany was near Jerusalem, right? So in order to raise Lazarus, Jesus had to go back with his disciples to the region of Judea, very close to Jerusalem, where Jesus had only recently escaped the attempted murder at the hands of the Jews, Now, to be near Jerusalem and with many people from Jerusalem now in the region, right, many Jews having come to console Mary and Martha, we are reminded again of the danger. And we have this note here to remind us of where Jesus is heading, uh, where this story is ultimately going. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha here, grieving the loss of her brother, comes to Jesus and expresses her grief. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She is confident that if Jesus had arrived in time, perhaps if he had left right as the message reached him, that he could have been able to come in time to heal Lazarus. She expresses here not blame, but I think grief and faith. She has heard of, perhaps has witnessed herself, Jesus' healing power. She has perhaps seen his compassion and kindness toward all those who would come to him for healing. And she expresses faith that if he had been with Lazarus before the end, he would have healed him, and Lazarus would still be alive. 
And then she says, But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, what she means by this is not entirely clear. Uh, The natural reading seems to be that she is confident that even now, if Jesus were to ask his father, Lazarus could be raised from the dead. Now, if that is what she meant, it is a great expression of faith in Christ. Now, this reading is challenged by some who think that if this is what she had meant, she would probably not have resisted having the stone removed later on in verse 39. Uh, But either way, this is a statement of confidence from Martha in Christ, either in his ability to raise Lazarus even now, or more generally, a statement that the fact that Lazarus has not been uh, healed, the fact that Jesus did not come in time, Mary, uh, Martha says this has not shaken her confidence in Jesus. She still believes him to be someone that has a very special relationship to the Father, right? Even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know. He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, D.A. Carson calls Jesus' response here a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. A masterpiece of planned ambiguity, right? The response that Jesus gives could be taken as a very general encouragement from someone who simply held to what any devout Orthodox Jew of the day would have believed, and that is that there will be a resurrection at the last day. You think of the kind of Uh, encouragement you'd hear at a funeral, right? You will see them again, or they are in a better place, right? Something along those lines. Jesus simply saying, your brother will rise again. Uh, And this would would have been in accord with Christ's own teaching on the topic as well, as he has promised. Those whom the Father draws, he will keep, he will not lose, but will raise them up on the last day, right? So it, it could be taken that way, or it could be very specifically what Jesus is going to do. Now Jesus takes it, or Martha rather, takes it the first way, believing Jesus to simply be pointing her to the hope they have in resurrection at the last day. I know he will rise again on the last day. But Jesus had a far more immediate fulfillment of this promise in mind. Lazarus, her brother, would rise not only on the last day, but on this day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And here we have the fifth of the famous I am statements of Jesus in John. Although not always, several of these statements have been linked to something uh, either in the setting or something Jesus has done or is about to do. Uh, For example, in John 6, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And this came right on the heels of having fed the 5,000, right, where he multiplied the loaves. Then he says, I am the bread of life. In John 9, he had declared, I am the light of the world. Right before he opened the eyes of the man who was born blind. Here now, he declares, I am the resurrection and the life. Right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. All of these I am statements reveal something more to us of who Christ is uh, and what he will do as Messiah. So Martha had expressed a belief in a future resurrection and Jesus now diverts her attention from a general hope in resurrection specifically to himself 
the one who brings resurrection. I am the resurrection. So just as Jesus not only gives bread from heaven, but is himself the bread of life, so also not only will he raise the dead on the last day, but he is the resurrection and the life. That is to say, there is neither resurrection nor eternal life outside of him. Jesus then goes on to expand on what he meant by that statement, I am the resurrection. Jesus explains, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So for all true Christians, those who are in Christ, united to him by faith, although they die, yet shall they live. Christ is the resurrection and Christ brings the resurrection. He will raise them up on the last day. And I think this text gives us a great opportunity to address a very important doctrine, and that is this. It's the question of what happens to us right after we die? Christ, I think, is speaking here of the final resurrection, right? When death is finally destroyed and the dead are raised imperishable. But that raises a question for us, and that is, what happens to us in the meantime? Right? Where do we go? Now, this will pull us out of John briefly, but I believe it to be a worthwhile detour, as these are important questions, and we do have answers to them from the scriptures. So as the Westminster Catechism asks it, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8, Paul says this, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So catch that. Paul says to be away from your body, that is, to die, to have your body put in the ground, that is for the Christian to be at home with the Lord. That is, you immediately pass into glory. You go directly to the presence of the Lord. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. And Paul describes this state as being better, in fact, far better than continuing in the body. So right away at death, for those who are in Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is to be at home with the Lord. And as Paul reflects on the end of his own life in Philippians 1, he describes death as preferable. He says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, he says, for that is far better. Now, while Jesus is likely talking about the final resurrection in John 11, which we'll cover in a moment, what he says is also true prior to the final resurrection, and that is, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You may remember Jesus rebuked the Sadducees, and he gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as examples. Right? The Sadducees denied the resurrection, 
Um, and so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were men who lived thousands of years uh, even before the time of Christ. And Jesus' argument to the Sadducees is that they are alive. For God said, I am the God of Jacob, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So the patriarchs, who at the time of Jesus, although their bodies had been dead and buried for thousands of years, they were, according to Christ, very much alive. They were alive. For the Christian, death has truly lost its sting. Though we are separated from our bodies for a time, Scripture teaches that at our deaths, prior to the final resurrection, we go instantly into the presence of God. And here's how our confession puts it. Uh, Chapter 31, Article 1. The bodies of those who have died return to dust and undergo destruction, but their souls neither die nor sleep because they have an immortal character and immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and are received into paradise. They are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory while they wait for the full redemption of their bodies. Now, here, that there is the doctrine. We go directly to be with the Lord when we die. Now, what are the uses of this doctrine, right? What are the, the applications? Uh, we could ask even why did God see fit to reveal this to us? Well, the text that I preached just coming up on a year ago now at my grandmother's funeral was 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, where Paul gives a glorious section about the resurrection and about what has happened to those uh, who have fallen asleep in Christ. And what's fascinating is that Paul gives us the reason for this section. In verse 13, he says this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We do not want you to be uninformed, to be clueless about what happens to them, because we do not want you to grieve as others who have no hope. I titled that sermon, Grieving Differently. So as Christians, when we say goodbye to our loved ones, there is intended from God to be great comfort. As we consider that those who loved Christ in life are now in his presence. Now, this does not mean that we do not grieve, but rather, as Paul says, we grieve differently. And that is, we do not grieve as others who have no hope. Our hope, upon which is our life and our eternity, is in Christ. We believe the promises of God, and so we are confident that those who die in Christ are in glory. They now are with Christ, free of pain, sorrow, sickness, and grief. Though we here may cry, we know that every tear of theirs is wiped from their eyes by the Father. They are presently in the fullness of joy that is the presence of God at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16, 11. They are experiencing greater joy 
than anything that they had ever experienced here on earth. And so all of this is why Christians grieve differently. We also think of our own deaths differently. For us, the sting of death is gone, and so we need not fear death as those who have no hope. We know there is meaning in our lives and to eternity. I was watching football last week, and it was the Hall of Fame game, uh, and there were new players being inducted into the CFL Hall of Fame, players and coaches, and they'd made these little busts of the players and coaches, little statues of their heads, Uh, And the commentators kept talking about how these men were now being immortalized. Because there is now a little statue of them in Hamilton. Immortalized. This is their idea of immortality. To have a statue made. This is about as good as it gets, apart from Christ. To maybe have your loved one sponsor a park bench in your name. To maybe buy a star and have it named after you. I'm still not sure who gave themselves the authority to sell the naming rights of stars. Now don't hear me wrong, there's nothing wrong with a nice gesture to honor the memory of your loved one. But for those who don't have hope in Christ, that is as close to permanence as they can get. That is as close to immortality as they think they can get. Now the fact is, your soul is immortal. It is not eternal. You have not always existed. But it is immortal. That is, from now on, you will always exist. Right? You will spend eternity somewhere. It's an old cliche, but it's hung around for a reason. If you died tomorrow... Do you know where you'd be? Right, and that causes eye rolls from those who don't want to think about it, but however dismissive they may be, the fact is we cannot escape our mortality. You will die. Considering how long forever is when compared to our time on earth, it's actually quite interesting that we don't spend more time thinking about this than we do. Uh, We very naturally tend to prepare for things when we know that they're coming. Uh, For example, Diane and I have our fourth child on the way, due very soon, and so we've been preparing. Uh, We've bought a van. We've been working at getting our bedroom situation sorted out in our house so that the baby can have the nursery. Right? We have some very big changes coming, and so we've been preparing for them. It would be very foolish of us, as we saw the baby growing throughout the pregnancy, if we just shrugged it off and said, We'll cross that bridge when we get there. Right? When you know something is coming, you prepare for it. The bigger the thing, the more you prepare. There is something coming for each of us. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Are you ready for that day? And don't presume upon your good works... It doesn't matter if you think your good works outweigh your bad. That's not the question. It doesn't matter if you can name ten other people you think are worse sinners than you, for God does not grade on a curve. The question on that day is simply this. Are you a sinner 
or are you righteous? And before you attempt to answer that question in your mind, you should know this. The standard is perfection. James 2 verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So from God's perspective, if you have sinned, then you are a sinner. If you are a sinner, then you are not righteous. And to back it up even further, Scripture actually testifies that we are all guilty in Adam. Right? The very fact that we are now subject to this curse of death in the first place proves that we are guilty before God. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. We might ask, what does he mean, all sinned? I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden. I didn't eat the forbidden fruit. How can he say that all sinned? Well, the answer is that Adam was our federal head. He was our representative. What he did extends to all those whom he represents, and he represents all mankind. And so we sinned in him. We are born into a fallen race. We are born into a curse. Our first parents were sinners, and so they could only reproduce according to their kind. They could only make more sinners. Their children were born fallen. Your parents were fallen, and so you are fallen, born in sin. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So all of this is the bad news. Your condition is this, guilty in Adam, born into a fallen race under the curse of death. Your sinful nature then produced sin in you, such that you have personally sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. All mankind, therefore, is deserving of death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. We are deserving of eternal punishment, the lake of fire, the second death, for this is the just penalty for sinning against an infinitely worthy and holy God. So with all of that knowledge, now I ask again, are you ready to stand before God on Judgment Day? If God were to simply be perfectly fair as your judge, if he were to give you perfect justice according to what you yourself have earned, what you deserve, what would the sentence be? Guilty. Guilty. Now that is all the bad news. And it is against this backdrop of bad news upon which the good news shines like the sun at noonday. The good news is this, to return to our text. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, and he says, those who believe in him will receive eternal life. Scripture fleshes it out for us. To believe in Christ is to have faith in him. 
It is to believe that he is who he said he was, to believe that he died on the cross and rose again, and to trust the promise that all who will turn from their sin and turn to him will receive forgiveness and eternal life. Right? Here's the answer. How can you be ready to stand before Almighty God? Those who believe in Jesus, who have true faith, who are united to him by faith, they will be welcomed. It is only the blood of Christ that can forgive our sins. It is only by his perfect righteousness that we can be accepted before God. And here's how this works. Right? Just as Adam's sin was credited, was counted to those whom he represented, so too Christ is called the last Adam. Right? Things function in a very similar way. Christ is our new covenant head, such that what he has done extends to those whom he represents. Right? And he has paid the penalty for sin. He has fulfilled God's law. If you are in him, that applies to you. So if you believe in Christ, Jesus says, if you believe in me, though they die, yet they shall live. You shall go to live with Christ immediately at your death, and then your body will one day be raised imperishable. All right, so let's look at that, the, the final resurrection. The next article from chapter 31 of our confession says this, Pardon me. At the last day, those saints who are found alive will not sleep, but will be changed. All the dead will be raised up with the very same bodies, not different ones, so they will have different qualities. And their bodies will be united again to their souls forever. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus speaks, uh, Paul speaks of Jesus coming with those who had fallen asleep in him. Right, he returns with them, and then the dead in Christ rise. So those who die in Christ go to be with him now, but we know this is not yet the eternal state. We look forward to the final resurrection of our bodies, the complete abolishment of death. Christ gets off his throne to deal with the last enemy, and that is death. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 14. As I mentioned, when Christ returns, he will bring with him those who have asleep, and the dead in Christ shall rise. So those who are with Christ in paradise will be reunited with their bodies at the resurrection on the last day. That then will be the eternal state. So Christianity teaches a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. For just as Christ's body was physically raised from the dead, so too shall we be raised. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now this is Christ's explanation of that second phrase of what it means for him to be the resurrection. Uh, then he expands on what it means for him to be the life. Verse 26, look with me to the text. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, D.A. Carson argues that John 5 should be seen as the background to these words. And if you compare the texts, I think the parallels are strong. Uh, in John 5, you may remember, Jesus teaches that the Father had given him authority 
to grant life to whom he wills, and that those who believe in him have eternal life. And he uses a very interesting phrase where he actually says, and they have passed from death to life. Now, when we worked through that section, we saw Jesus was teaching what theologians call inaugurated eschatology, right, or realized eschatology. So eschatology is our study of last things. We're looking at at the end, right, eternal life, resurrection, that's eschatology proper. And by saying it's inaugurated, we're saying those realities have already begun, right, here and now. So things like eternal life, Jesus says, have broken into the present, right? The end time victory has already been inaugurated, right? Has already begun, but has not yet reached its full consummation. You can think of it as already, but not yet, right? So that end time victory has invaded the present in a very real sense. It is here now, heaven breaking in, uh, so that Jesus can say the hour is coming and is now here, Uh, We also see that we have eternal life and we will have eternal life. The victory is here now, but not yet in its fullness. There is this concept of the already and the not yet. So in John 5, Jesus says those who believe in him have eternal life. They they do not come into judgment, but have passed from death to life. That is true now. He speaks of future realities as things which believers may partake in now. And yet we know the life that we now live will end. Unless the Lord returns in our lifetimes, we all will die. And yet we have this idea that Christ says those who believe in him have passed from death to life. It is already true, but not yet in its fullness. So then back to John 11, whoever, believe, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. If Carson is right in identifying John 5 as the background to John 11, then Jesus could be paraphrased this way. Whoever has eternal life and believes in me shall never die. Um, Carson argues Jesus is not just saying the same thing twice here, uh, but rather he is stressing with this concept of lives, whoever lives. He says that stresses the internal change that must come about wrought by the power of God. Then the second, believes in me, is the stance that the individual must adopt. So to explain this verse here, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Whoever has been born again has had their heart changed by God, right, been made regenerate, that's what it is to live, As a result of this, they will have faith, right? They will believe in me. And these people, in a a true sense, shall never die. That is, they shall possess eternal life, even here and now, as we await our full experience of that eternal life in the consummation. Now, I apologize. I know that feels a tad academic. Uh, We're using big words, and I am stumblingly trying to explain big concepts, Uh, And truly, we do need to know the gospel is gloriously deep, right? If nothing else, I hope this gives you a picture of how much depth (laughs) there is to go into. Um, But please don't think that you need to be a scholar in order to benefit from Christ. 
right? For if you have simple but true faith in Christ, then you are a partaker in these realities, whether you fully grasp them or not. And the fact is, nobody has a full grasp of the glories of the gospel. This is one of the things we will spend eternity uh, plumbing the depths of, is these glories, right? So do not be discouraged, but rather rejoice in the infinite depth of the glories of the gospel and what we have in Christ, right? If you are in Christ, you have passed from death to life, and one day you will fully pass from death to life. Let's continue on here. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this? Now he's not asking if she believes that Jesus is about to raise her brother from the dead. Rather, he's asking if her faith can move from that confidence in final resurrection now to a personal trust in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. The only person who can grant eternal life and promise the transformation of resurrection. Martha answers, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha answers very well. She believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and she simply carries that argument forward. Right? If he is the resurrection and the life, then it must be because he is God's promised Messiah. Right? He is the Christ, the anointed one, the prophesied son of God. And so the same question comes to all of us. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that he is the Christ, the prophesied Messiah, the Son of God? And have you then put your full trust in him, right, to receive him and to rest on him alone for salvation as the only one who can give you a right standing with God? Right? If you have, death has lost its sting for you. Right? You will be welcomed by God. And if you have not, I would encourage you, put your faith in Christ. For those who share the faith of Martha, this whole story of Lazarus, which will continue next week, this story becomes an enacted parable, becomes a picture or a mini-drama displaying the resurrection power of Jesus, who gives life to whom he will. He is the resurrection and the life Come to him in faith and find life both here and now and in the age to come. Amen.